We're going to read from God's Word now. We've got two readings this morning, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. So in the New Testament, firstly, we're reading from John's Gospel and chapter 8. John's Gospel and chapter 8, and then in a little while we'll be turning to Isaiah chapter 8 as we continue uh, there at the end of Isaiah chapter 8 into chapter 9 on this Advent series we're we're going through. But firstly, I want us to read from verse 21 of John chapter 8. Through to, to the end of the chapter. The heading in my Bible says, This is a dispute over who Jesus is. Let's hear God's word. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, Will he kill himself? Is that why he says, Where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? they asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me, because you have no room for my words. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. 
The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his words. Your father Abram rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And then we turn to Isaiah chapter 8 verse 22, and we read through to verse 7 of chapter 9. Isaiah writes, Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, please turn back to Isaiah chapter 9. And as we turn there, let's pray that God would help us as we come to his word. Father, as we come now and consider again the great promises of Christmas we're so aware that so often words can just go in one year and out of the other and we pray that this morning you'd help us to listen and to focus that uh, they might uh, stay and take root in our minds and in our hearts that you might uh, shape us and and change us and give us a, a new and a clearer vision of the Lord Jesus and that we might respond to him and live our lives in the light of who he is and all that he has done for us. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What comes to mind when you think about uh, mighty strength or uh, almighty power? 
Maybe you think of, of the world's strongest man competition. That always seems to be on TV uh, around this, this time of year, and they do crazy things and lift uh, huge uh, weights. Maybe you think of that kind of thing, or you think of, of large steel, concrete structures, big uh, infrastructure projects, big buildings that have been uh, made. Or maybe it's very simply that person that you saw at the shops this week, and they were laden down with all those bags for life as they were hobbling to the car, and you admired their perseverance uh, to get uh, to the boot. Maybe you think of the incredible discipline and uh, self-control and willpower of somebody who's set their, their minds on achieving something, and they've accomplished that goal that they set out uh, to reach. Well, whatever it is that you think of, humanly speaking, uh, when you think of mighty power, the greatest example that you can think of in all the, of the world doesn't come close uh, to the almighty power of mighty God. This morning we're continuing on in our Advent series, dwelling on the promise of God that was made to us through the prophet Isaiah about 700 years or so before the birth of Christ in Isaiah chapter 9. And we saw last week, didn't we, that out of the, the context of spiritual darkness, out of a gloomy and seemingly hopeless situation, light would dawn, joy would be known, hope would come, and that would happen as a child is born and as a son is given. And at that first Christmas, 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, this promise found its fulfillment as the Son of God took on flesh, as Jesus Christ was born as a human, as we've just been thinking about with the children, just like us. And this Jesus would be known by these four names that we have here in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9. And we considered last Sunday evening that he's the wonderful counsellor, that Jesus is the wisdom of God and he wonderfully demonstrates uh, that to us in his person and in his work and in his death. And so this morning as we come to that second name in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 where Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He will be called Mighty God. Jesus Christ is mighty God. And this Christmas, that is good news. It's good news for you. It's good news for me. It's good news for this whole world. And so on this second Sunday of Advent, I want us to see the wonder that this child who is born in a stable in Bethlehem is also mighty God. And I want us to do that as we see two truths this morning. Uh, the first being that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is is God. Isaiah is telling us hundreds of years before he was born that this son who will be given to us in this dark and gloomy world will be called mighty God. He will be God. And because nobody can become God, Isaiah is saying that he already is God. He always has been God and always will be God. And when this baby is born in Bethlehem, he will be called God. I want to say that really clearly this morning at the outset, that Jesus Christ is God. All these years beforehand, it was promised that God himself would come into this world born as a baby. This is something that Isaiah understood. He knew exactly what this meant when he wrote this, that this son would be given to us, that he'll be called mighty God. He knew that this meant that the child to be born would be divine. 
We know that because when he was speaking of the the remnant of Israel returning to the Lord in the next chapter, in chapter 10, in verse 21, he says that a remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to who? To the mighty God. The one whom Isaiah knew as, as his Lord and his mighty God then, 700 years before, was the same one who would be born, mighty God, several hundred years later. The clear, faithful, rock-solid promise of God is that he himself would come in human form, taking on the very nature of mankind, humbling himself in his coming and ultimately, most of all, in his death. Jesus Christ is God and he has come among us as a human being. And Jesus knew this himself. He knew who he was, that he was totally God and totally a man. And so when he was questioned about this by the Jewish religious leaders, as we read earlier in John chapter 8, we read there that he, he told them that before Abraham was born, I am. And by that, Jesus meant that before Abraham had existed, a few thousand years before that was happening there in John 8, a few thousand years before that, Jesus was saying, well, I've, I existed. Before Abraham was there. I was there. And so in referring to himself as I am, he was using the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus was, Jesus was saying, that is who I am. I am is who I am. I am the sovereign God who is the source of my own existence, who has always been and always will be the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing God. And I'm here to physically live among you. Jesus Christ is God. And those listening to him understood exactly what he was saying. We saw that, didn't we? They knew that he was claiming to be God. And so what did they do? They picked up stones to stone him. That might sound extreme to our ears, but they were going to kill him for what he'd said because they were not happy with that. They were so strong and clear with Jesus' words to their ears. And they didn't like it because they knew what he was saying. They knew he was saying that he was God. And so they rejected that. They didn't want to, to listen to Jesus Christ, the man who is God. I wonder what you make of that, friend. Do you believe that? Or are you like those Jew- Jewish religious leaders of the day who chose to reject Jesus Christ? Is Jesus what Christmas is all about for you? That God has taken on flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or are you rejecting him this morning? But maybe your reaction to that is, well, yes, I'm well aware of that, thanks, and I already knew of that. Can I hear something that I don't already know? Well, then can I suggest that maybe you haven't given that enough thought? God became man. Light meets darkness. The infinite meets the finite. Wow. Jesus Christ is God. The earth-shattering truth of the incarnation is God incarnate. Jesus Christ is God. God has come and dwelled among us in the real physical person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read at the start of our service, John tells us that in his opening chapter of his gospel, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The Son of God has come into this world. The Word, as John refers to him 
as in that verse, the, the eternal Son of God who has always existed, co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father, has come into this world and has been born, as we've just been thinking about, as a small, vulnerable baby, reliant on his mother for food and warmth, just like any uh, other baby is. The Son of God humbled himself as he came and lived among us. He left the glories of heaven and came to this inglorious world as the light shining in the darkness. Literally, he pitched his tent among us and lived in our neighborhood. Now, sometimes in order to raise money for charity and to raise awareness for things, celebrities will spend a night or two uh, out on the streets sleeping rough to, to highlight issues, to highlight the issue of homelessness and things like that. And one of the more famous examples was a few years ago, but it was one that that stuck out at the time. Maybe you remember it back in 2009 when the future king, he's not there yet, but one day maybe, Prince William, he slept rough on the streets of London to experience something of what it's like to to be homeless. He went down to Blackfriars Bridge with his sleeping bag. It was part of an event run by a homeless charity. And okay, it was only one night and it's not the, the full experience, but... They'd have taken a lot of precautions, I suppose, to make sure he was safe. But nonetheless, they they were out in the elements. It was a biting cold evening, low temperatures. There was no comfortable bed for the prince that night. Just a concrete floor to to lie on. Not knowing, I suppose, who could have come up to them at at any time. I suppose there'd have been a a, a bit of trepidation. It would have been a bit scary, I suppose. It wasn't something he was used to. And so instead of the comfort of the palace, there was the discomfort of a floor outside in the cold on the London streets. And no matter what you think of, of the royal family, I think we've all got to say fair play uh, to Prince William for, for doing that and spending a night uh, out uh, on the streets. That's not something I've done. Maybe you haven't done that either. And even this week, maybe you saw in the news, he was out in West London. He was selling a big issue magazine at Tesco and Hammersmith. Something he's passionate about, the problem of homelessness. And, and all that, in some small way, is illustrating what I'm trying to say happened at that first Christmas. We can say it's quite a jump, isn't it, from a lovely palace in London to the streets to sleep on, buy some wheelie bins. That's quite a jump. But it's absolutely nothing compared to the jump from the glories of heaven to this world. And that is what Jesus Christ has done for us. He is God and he really has come. He's God in the flesh. He's the one who, who spoke this world into existence. He's the great Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And he's taken on flesh. The baby that was born on the first Christmas is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is God. He's Lord of all. He's the eternal one who, when laid in a manger in Bethlehem, as we've sung already, was also sustaining the, 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 the universe in which he lived. Jesus Christ is God. Oh, do you believe in him, friend? Do you believe in him? Or maybe I should put it this way. Is this the Jesus that you believe in? Is this the Jesus you believe in? Is the Jesus you know, the eternal son of God? Yes, fully human and yet also fully divine. Are you full of praise in songs divine of the incarnate deity that our God was contracted to a span an incomprehensibly made man. Is this the Jesus you know? Maybe the Lord's reminding you of this truth this morning, and and you need to hear this because I'm sure most people wouldn't doubt that there was some kind of Jesus, 
who lived a few thousand years ago, but maybe you've watered Jesus down and you've made him palatable. And the life that you're living at the moment is one where Jesus is an accessory to your life. He said some nice things, but Jesus is nothing more than that to you. And yet that's not an option for Jesus. Because he's God. He's Lord. He's Lord of humanity and angels of all creation. And every nation. And he rules and he reigns over every single thing. So Jesus can't just be an add-on to your life. I'll do a bit of Jesus when I can. No, Jesus must be everything. He didn't come into this world and live a spotless life. And die a cruel death so that you might have a bit of a safety net in case things go wrong. And yet you don't give him much thought and you don't live for him day by day. No, Jesus Christ is God. And if that is who he is, then we must be fully devoted to him. He's worthy of our praise. He alone deserves our wholehearted commitment. For it is he who made us. And we are his. I wonder, do you believe that this morning, friend? Do you need to come back? Do you need to come back? Do you need to come for the first time to Jesus? Do you need to come and recommit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ? Not only for Christmas and it's Advent time and all the rest of it, but for every day of the year. Jesus Christ is God. hope that you've heard that loudly and clearly this morning. It's absolutely essential to our understanding of Christmas, of who Jesus is, and even of Christianity itself. Jesus wasn't God. Well, then that makes him no different to you and me. And he's not worth trusting in if he's not God. If he's not God, there's no salvation for any of us. There's no Christianity because salvation is of the Lord. And if you and I are are going to know a new life through the forgiveness of sins, it must be through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ who is God. But maybe as you're listening to this, your response is one where you're you're not convinced. You're not really sure about what you're hearing. You don't think that this really is who Jesus is. But if that is you, friend, then you're not the only one in all the world this morning. I encourage you to to hear carefully this second truth that comes through in this, this name of Jesus this morning. And why it is you can trust him. You really can. And my prayer for you is that you would come and put your faith in him. And for those of us this morning here who are already trusting in the Lord Jesus, my prayer is that this will encourage you. It'll encourage you on to trust him more, to love him more. Uh, Secondly, very simply, we see that Jesus is mighty. Jesus is mighty. He will be called mighty God. It's in his name. This child to be born, this son who will be given, is mighty God. Jesus is, he was and he is and he will be, divinely strong and powerful. It's really important because... It's telling us that this baby born in a stable 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem wasn't some kind of radical Jewish rabbi, not just some nice teacher who said some lovely things that changed a few people's thoughts. He's none other than Almighty God. And we've seen already, haven't we, something of his might in the very fact of who he is, that he is God, that he is indeed mighty Christ from time eternal, Mighty he man's nature takes. Consider that God the Almighty came and took on flesh. That Jesus Christ is mighty in his person. Great as God. And man is he. That he's fully God and he's fully man. That is mind blowing. And that is what makes him mighty. 
But there's two aspects of the might of Jesus that I want us to just meditate on briefly uh, together. And, and the first is that Jesus is mighty in his works. Jesus is mighty in his works. The Lord Jesus Christ is mighty. And when you read through the pages of the gospel accounts, you can't come to any other conclusion than the fact that Jesus really is mighty. There's so many examples. And I'd encourage you to, to go and read the gospels with that in mind, the might of Jesus. And so just consider these few examples just to give us a flavor of the great might of, of Jesus Christ. With great power and great authority, he healed many people. You can go to somewhere like Luke 5 and you can read of Jesus healing a paralyzed man. Some men bring their friend to Jesus and because of the crowds they can't get in. So they take him upstairs, open the roof up, take the tiles off, lower him in. And Jesus sees their faith and he says to the man, friend, your sins are forgiven. Jesus has the might. He possesses the power. He has the authority to forgive sins and he proves that by going on to heal this man of paralysis, visible evidence that Jesus is mighty, that he's almighty to heal and to forgive. Jesus is mighty in his works. He's mighty in the things that he did. He's mighty in the things that he said. His power could be seen in the words that Jesus spoke. In John chapter 10, we read of the, the conflict that takes place between Jesus and, and some of the Jews who were questioning him. And as Jesus replies to them and challenges them for their unbelief, he makes this stunning claim. I and the Father are one. Here's another example of the might of Jesus. He understood who he was, that he was God on equal terms with the Father. And the Jews there, again, like earlier in John 8, they knew what he was saying. And because his opponents didn't like it, they picked up stones. And to stone him, because in their words, he was committing blasphemy because you and me, a man, claim to be God. You see, friends, the things that Jesus did, the way he taught with all authority demonstrated quite clearly his power and his authority that he really was mighty God. Jesus is mighty in his works. And maybe this was shown in the most remarkable way in the following chapter, John 11, where he records for us Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, where his power is seen as he works by his word, as he goes to the scene of, of a weeping and sad family, where his friend Lazarus has been dead in a tomb for four days. All hope is lost. And yet it's not the end because of the sovereign might of the all-powerful Savior, who with a word raises the dead. As he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, to which... The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Wow. Jesus is mighty in his work. He had literally brought back Lazarus from the dead. Is there a better display of power than this? That is pretty impressive. You might not think that that could be topped, but it can because of the second aspect of the might of Jesus that I want us to grasp and be aware of and take with us this week. And that is that Jesus is mighty in his death and resurrection. Jesus is mighty in his death and resurrection. As you get towards the end of the gospel accounts, Jesus Christ is crucified for supposed blasphemy, a charge he was innocent of because he is God himself. But those religious leaders, they arrested him 
on the betrayal of Judas, one of the disciples, they find people to give false testimony against him in a, in a corrupt trial that wasn't even legal. He's found guilty of a crime he didn't commit. He's perfectly blameless, and yet he was killed on a Roman cross on a hill outside Jerusalem. And you might be thinking, well, that does not sound like a display of might. That's a rather weak and sorry end to any life. That's not a picture of power or authority. But this morning I want to say to you, friends, that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is where the greatest and mightiest act of rescue is seen in all of human history. Jesus Christ is mighty to save, and it is at the cross that the, the might of Jesus Christ is seen. For as a human being who had perfectly kept the law of God, only he could represent us and die there on our behalf for, for we sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God. You and I have sinned against God. And left to ourselves, that's something that, that we can never put right. We'll always be in wrong standing before God on our own. And that's why we need Jesus, who incomprehensibly was made man. And yet he's also our God, as, as we've thought about. And only God could endure the immense burden of our sin and guilt and shame. Only he had the, the capacity, if you like, to, to take the sins of the world on his shoulders. Only he could bear our sins in his body on the tree. Only someone who was truly and fully God and man could be that one mediator, that representative between God and us. Only he could represent us and do that which we cannot do ourselves. As human beings, we're so weak, aren't we? We're so helpless. We're so unable to deal with our own deep-seated problem of our sin. And you take a look at world history, and you'll see that we're still making the same mistakes that we have for hundreds of years. There's still wars. There's still corruption. There's still poverty. There's still killings and abuses and all the other kinds of terrible things in our world. And the Bible is honest enough in assessing all of us that each of us have within us the potential for such terrible sins as those things I've just listed. By God's grace, we're not all as bad as we, we could have been, but none of us are any different to anyone else by nature. And because of our sin, we are left unable to ever be in right standing before a holy God. And so that is like what we've seen unfold on our news screens in the last couple of weeks. I wonder if you followed that story of those 41 trap miners in northern India. A really interesting uh, story. Uh, back on the 12th of, of November, these miners, they were constructing a tunnel uh, up in the north of India, and it, and it caved in on them. And they were stuck uh, down there underground. This landslide had caused them to be trapped. And they were there for 16 days. Imagine being underground for 16 days, unable to get out with any chance uh, at all in, in your own strength before they were finally rescued. Really interesting articles out there of, of how they did it, the, the, the engineering that it took to, to get them out of this collapsed tunnel and technologies and machinery. Really clever people who got these men out alive. They were 60 meters deep with debris between them, uh, stopping them from getting to safety. They drilled so far with these big machines and then the machines broke. And so for the last 12 meters, some brave men manually were drilling through all the debris to create a big enough gap to be able to get them out. You can imagine, can't you, the sense of relief and gratitude that there would have been for those miners and their families when earlier last week they were freed after over two weeks stuck underground. 
Why do I mention that? Well, they knew how helpless they were to save themselves. They knew there was nothing they could do to escape. They were in a pit, and they were trapped, and they were totally reliant on those outside with the diggers and the drills to get to them safely, that they might be rescued and see light and their families again. And when they came out, what did they say? They knew that their rescue was nothing of them. It was all of the rescuers. And they were so grateful. And that, in some ways, is what Christmas is all about. We are in a sad and sorry state of rebellion and brokenness. Our world is tarnished by the fall of the first human beings. And on our own, we are helpless to save ourselves. There was nothing, there is nothing that you and I can do to escape the pit of sin that we find ourselves in. We are trapped in our sin. And we're totally reliant on another to come to us that we might be rescued. And that's why we have Christmas. The Lord Jesus Christ, mighty God, came into this world to rescue us, to rescue you through his almighty death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. Such is the might of Jesus Christ that even death itself could not claim him. The grave had no claim on him. The greatest enemy that you and I can ever face in this world is death. That which brings an end to this life as we know it. And yet Jesus has defeated death. He has conquered the grave. He's the triumphant victor over sin and death and hell. And he has proven through his resurrection from the grave on that first Easter Sunday morning that he really is the victor. Friends, death is not the end because Jesus has won over it. And in so doing, he demonstrates his infinite might as God in the flesh. That's such a help to all of us this morning because it reminds us of the immense hope that is found in the gospel. There is real long-lasting hope in the resurrection of Jesus himself. The one who said, just before he brought back his friend Lazarus from the dead in John 10, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. Even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? If it wasn't for his birth, we wouldn't have had his life or his death or his resurrection. So Boney M had it right, didn't they? When they sang that man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. We need Christmas so that the conquering might of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty God, might be displayed to all the world in his death. And in his resurrection. This is amazing news for us this Christmas. For we who are weak. Some of us feel our weakness more than others maybe. Some of us have a real felt awareness that that we are weak physically. And that's just a result of, of each year that passes by. But even you who think that you're in good shape. That you're physically strong. And you're doing okay. Well the reality is that you too are also weak. We're all weak. We can have our our health and our energy taken from us in a moment. None of us are strong in the ultimate sense, really. We are frail humanity, but he is the almighty deity. And so be encouraged this Christmas, won't you, that the might of Jesus Christ is amazing news for us who are weak. Because as we trust ourselves totally to who he is, the one who is strong, we find rest for our souls, for this life, and also the one to come. In the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, mighty God has come among us. He is mighty from his birth to Calvary, mighty bursting from the grave. And yet, he 
is. He remains mighty and he always will be mighty. And when he comes again in power and authority to judge the living and the dead, his might will be seen then. And as we considered at the end of our service uh, last week, so we came around the Lord's table, this, this season of Advent reminds us of, of the first coming of Jesus into the world. But it also reminds us and points us forward to the second coming. That the Lord Jesus will come again and in his sovereign might, he will be seen in all of his power. Regardless of your view of Jesus through your life. As we close this morning, friend, I've got to ask you, if you're ready for that day, are you ready for when the Lord Jesus Christ will come again? We're celebrating his first coming in this Advent season, but he'll come again. And that will be a great cause of celebration for everyone who has their faith in him. But for you who is like that, those Jewish religious leaders, you're deciding to reject Jesus Christ, then that'll be a fearful day. It'll be a terrible day because it will lead you to a lost eternity in hell. And friends, that's why Christmas is so important. Because through this season, through this truth, through this reality, we can know our sins forgiven. Hell is what all of us deserve. But here we've got the promise that God, in his mercy, has given us his best. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Christian, you can trust in this mighty God this morning. You can trust your life to him. You can keep trusting to him. He's proven himself time and time and time again. He who is mighty, he's done a great thing. We've considered that this morning. And you know that he's kept you. And you know that he will continue to keep you. You can trust yourself. Again, this morning, to this mighty one, mighty God, to King Jesus, this Christmas, that you might not know him, not in power to judge, but that you might know him in his saving power, in his rescuing power. And so will you come? Will you come this Christmas? And will you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true mighty God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he's mighty God. And we ask that you give us a clearer view of him, that we might love him and praise him more for all of his mighty works and acts in his mighty person, most wonderfully demonstrated at the cross of Calvary. We pray for the help of your spirit to trust ourselves to you as we go our separate ways. Now, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.